Hi everybody, this is Ben and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education. I do my best to present accurate information, but this podcast is not professional medical advice. The podcast is a personal project and does not represent the views of my medical school. Hi everybody, welcome back to Ben's Week in Medical School. This is episode 37 and I'm in week 41 of medical school. This last week was so great. I had a week with no classes, so I was able to catch up. I got both of my inboxes down to zero, and I got to do some exercise, some mountain biking in the area, tried a new mountain bike park, and I went paddleboarding for the first time this year, uh, hopefully first of many. And that was just great. I feel um, really recharged from that. And so today I'm going to answer a few questions from email and then talk about the street medicine group. Let's get started. Here's a question from email. I had no idea that brain tumors are typically metastatic, reflecting tumors originating elsewhere in the body. How fascinating. Is that because the brain's neurological systems somehow create a special energy environment that makes a tumor want to move in there? Why are most cells, why are most tumors coming from other places? This is a great question. It harkens back to an episode where I mentioned that if you see a tumor in the brain, it's more likely that it actually is a metastasis from another organ that traveled, traveled to the brain. All things being equal, if you see a tumor on a brain MRI, it's more likely that it came from somewhere else than that it actually started from brain cells. And also, also, if you see more than one tumor in the brain, it's very likely, again, that it's a metastasis from somewhere else because typically if you have a brain tumor derived from brain cells, like what they call a primary brain tumor, then it's likely only to make a single tumor. So let's get into why. First, why are most cells coming from, why are most tumors coming from other places? One, one reason is that uh, most of the cells in the brain do not replicate quickly. These are neurons who have, uh, whose connections have been made over time. They happened during the development of, during childhood development. And these are not gonna change um, if these get damaged, they sometimes won't grow. Ba- they won't grow back. They basically, once you have them, that's like what you get. And if they degenerate, you're just going to start losing function. Compare that to the liver, which actually can regenerate its cells. The liver also, as to continue with that example, it has to work harder every time you eat, and it and it responds to lots of metabolic changes, like for instance taking medications or drinking alcohol. Whereas the brain regulates its environment very well, so it's not subjected to as many stresses. It's kind of in a protected area, meaning that your body has to work very hard to just keep it in a homeostasis. It does. You don't want to have many changes to the brain environment because that could any any change could kind of quickly kill you. The liver is rapidly dividing. It deals with toxins. It filters out toxins and then deactivates them. But therefore, those those cells that are doing the work are in contact with these toxins, 
And um, it's kind of on the front lines of dealing with bad stuff in your body. So that's an example of why all the cells that make up the liver might be more likely to have tumors grow there. The most common tumor type that ends up in the brain is non-small cell lung cancers. And I'm going to wait to talk more about that until we get to the pulmonology unit of our curriculum, because I think we're just going to learn so much more about those that I might as well just um, let that arrive naturally. The other part of it is why don't brain tumors leave the brain to spread elsewhere? The very simple answer is, is that a big enough brain tumor is just going to kill you. Let me get a little bit more nuanced. Uh, the skull is a fixed size, so within the brain space, there isn't room for expansion. So any new growth will take up more space, but it's a zero-sum equation, meaning that some other part of the brain will have to squish, get smaller, or even force its way out of the skull if there's sufficient pressure from a new growth. So new growth could be a tumor. We'd also consider something like swelling in the brain to take up more space in the same way that a new growth would. Hemorrhage or bleeding into the brain would also take up more space. So all of those things can compress parts of the brain and cause parts to even what's called herniate out of the brain, which would be kind of squishing and squeezing out through like the base of the skull. One other reason you're only going to see one tumor in a brain tumor that came from the brain is because as soon as this lump grows sufficiently, it's going to cause symptoms, headaches, changes in your vision and senses. After these, this person presents to the doctor with these changes and gets an MRI, you're going to see this tumor and then immediately start figuring out how to treat it and deal with it. And this all happens much earlier than most tumors that happen out in other parts of the body. A liver tumor or a liver cancer or a pancreatic cancer might be much more advanced before it gets detected, whereas a brain tumor will almost always be a single tumor at the point when it, when it gets detected. The last question there was whether the brain creates an especially good environment for tumors to grow. And I don't believe that that's specifically the case. Different tumors will have affinities to land in different parts of the body, depending on what receptors they have on their cell surfaces. So I'm not going to go out on a limb about a special energy environment that's especially hospitable to tumors, but that's a great question and it might be true. This question comes at the start of cardiology and the question is why are veins blue and I like this one one of the things that's really captivating about medicine is that a question like this can have answers can have multiple layers of answers and that as a physician I'm tasked with kind of under needing to understand all of the layers at least to an extent or at least being able to realize that there are more layers that I might need to consult with someone else about in order to treat a condition. So anyway, if we look at the surface of our skin, we might see some veins underneath and they look blue. Why is that? I've mentioned before, and this is something that I kind of find endlessly delightful or interesting, is that most of the cells in the body are clear. So if you were to take 
almost any slice of skin, put it on a microscope slide, take a part of your, I don't know, your tonsils and put it on the microscope slide or most parts of the body, a little, even a little bit of bone, your bone marrow. Most of these cells that you can see in, on the microscope slide are gonna be clear and you're not really gonna see hardly anything. When you put enough cells together, we're not obviously clear to light. We block light and we absorb light. We've heard that deoxygenated blood is blue. Well, it's not really blue. It's just darker red. It, it's not even really purple. It's just a more inky dark red than arterial blood. And you can see this if you ever look at one of the tubes of blood that are collected after you have blood labs drawn at the hospital or clinic. That is the exact blood that's flowing in your veins, and it's not blue. It's dark red. If they were to accidentally get blood directly from your artery, it would be a more bright red, um, maybe more fire engine red than brick red or something like that. So it's a pretty minor difference. That difference, however, is enough to be used for pulse oximeters, those little things, those little machines that measure how oxygenated your blood is that have become really popular uh, during COVID times. They slip over your finger, they shine a beam of a specific wavelength of light into your skin and then look at what comes back in the reflection. And they can analyze the color of the wavelengths that are sent back to determine how oxygenated the blood is at that moment. But it's really just discriminating between a bright red and a darker red. So that doesn't really explain the blue color. And now onto something else, which maybe some people will feel squeamish about, but as a medical student, I've had the opportunity to observe veins and arteries in a cadaver. I've also been able to watch some surgical instructional videos on about vascular surgery, where they are connecting an artery to a vein surgically under bright hospital operating room light, they both look exactly the same. They're just a little bit pinkish. So an artery and a vein don't really look much different uh, as far as what color you see. The blood itself doesn't account for the color. The vessel it is running through doesn't account for the color. Lastly is just the skin. So skin is more likely to absorb blue light, whereas red can be reflected back. So that's why our general skin tone is looking like mostly reflected light uh, in like a pink or a brown tone. The blue light that penetrates further into the skin, when it hits a, a vein, it will bounce back. And so instead of continuing to penetrate further and further and just dispersing within the body, once it hits the blood vessel, the, the light, a good portion of it will start to bounce back. So that means that you're going to get general skin tones, pinkish, brown skin tones, except where there's a vein where you're going to get a little bit of extra light bouncing back. And it happens that most of that light is going to be blue. So the blood is either red or dark red, not blue. And the blood vessels, they have kind of a reddish brownish color, but they're pretty much see-through. Then the last bit is just the skin and the fat overlying these blood vessels is what really dominates what colors you see back and since the the blue light penetrates better into the deeper uh, structures then when it hits the veins and blood vessels it can bounce back and that's what you're seeing
I have a link to a thoughtco.com article, which I think is kind of cool. And there's a few extra links in there that talk about eye color, why the ocean looks blue, that are all kind of related and interesting if you feel like reading up on that. Thanks to Kevin for that question. I got some good news this week. I found out a couple days ago that I have been invited to join the Street Medicine Kalamazoo group. So I'll be a part of the team that's setting up these clinics where we go out to encampments and to parks where homeless or unhoused people um, go and try to provide hygiene products and medical services to people there. Things like wound care and maybe screening for for sexually transmitted diseases, high blood pressure, or high blood sugars. All those things will be on our possible offerings. I'm really excited about it. This is kind of the ground floor of the program. A lot of work has gone into it already. Um, So I think we're gonna make a big difference and it's gonna be really rewarding to get out there and do this work. I'll be heading out there actually today for the first time. So uh, wish me luck. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions that you want to ask for a future episode, please email me at ben at bensweek.com. Thanks to David Funkhauser for the intro and outro music. Have a great week, everybody.